Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that canvasses issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including Holden to invest $120 million a year on local engineering and design. We talk to the General Manager of Communications from BMW Australia about a mobility forum they recently held in Melbourne. And we hear from Brian Smith on his upcoming trip to Vietnam to try and fix some of their transport problems. And then his reflections on some of the transport approaches we will have here in Australia in the future. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or you can podcast previous programs from your favourite podcast service. So let's start with the news. Holden has confirmed it will increase investment in design and engineering in Australia and will now spend $120 million a year, boosting its workforce to develop cars of the future for General Motors globally. A US-based spokesman for GM has restated the company's commitment to Holden Australia despite record low sales in the wake of the factory shutdown last year. The new project will add 150 new engineering and design jobs at Holden's Port Melbourne facility. Half of the new workforce will start this year, with the remainder commencing by mid-2019. In the wake of the Italian motorway bridge collapse, which killed 43 people, the French government undertook an urgent audit of its own motorway bridges, and the results are very alarming. The audit reports that 840 bridges, or 7% of the nation's structures, are at risk of collapse in the coming years and may be closed down as a result. The document cited lack of funding as the reason behind the weakened infrastructure as well as insufficient technical staff to maintain them. However, the audit did not cover the thousands of French bridges maintained by private companies or local authorities. The French president, Daniel Macron, has promised to plough more cash into the nation's infrastructure in the wake of the Genoa tragedy. Motorists believe that drivers speaking or texting on a mobile phone illegally are the greatest menace on the roads. An NRMA study of 1,500 members found that almost three-quarters, or 72%, ranked illegal phone use behind the wheel as their biggest road safety fear. Motorists said they regarded visible highway patrols as the most effective deterrent against dangerous driver behaviour. New data collected by the Centre for Road Safety shows young people are not the biggest offenders of illegally using a phone when driving. While 34,000 drivers aged 16 to 25 were fined for using their mobile phones in the cars from 2013 to 2017, a staggering 74,000 drivers aged 26 to 39 were caught over the same period. A close second were the 40 to 59-year-olds racking up 53,000 offences. The Ford Motor Company has received plenty of headlines lately as the manufacturer tries to negotiate the difficult terrain of today's evolving automotive industry. Early this year, Ford announced plans to shelve the majority of non-truck, non-crossover and non-Mustang models in North America, and now Ford has announced it will further cut its number of automotive platforms from nine to only five. 
The new plan is in line with the international manufacturing approach undertaken by competitors like Volkswagen and Toyota, allowing for streamlining in almost every phase of the process that brings a car from concept through development and to the market. Ford's next step is also a continuation of the massive Ford One plan that was set in place by former CEO Alan Mulally. Reducing the number of platforms is part of a wider strategy at Ford to cut costs by over $25 billion over the next five years. Audi recently announced that in response to weak demand, it will no longer offer a manual transmission model in its US market lineup beginning next year. Audi confirmed that it will pull the six-speed manual option from its A4 sedan and A5 coupe due to low interest from buyers. Demand for manual transmission cars has been on the sharp decline in the US over recent years, fueled in part by advanced automatic transmissions that yield better fuel economy. Audi will hardly be unusual among luxury automakers with an automatic-only showroom. Volvo, Mercedes-Benz and Lexus have all cut manual transmissions from their lineups. General Motors has been busy filing patents for new aerodynamic elements that might feature on the automaker's future cars, namely the C8 Chevrolet Corvette due next year. Three new patents which have been submitted to the United States Patent and Trademark Office are for active side skirts, active spoilers and downforce generating ducts. The active side skirt is used to adjust the drag of turbulent air on the side of a vehicle based on the current speed. Metrics such as the rotating speed of the wheel, as well as the speed of the vehicle relative to the road surface, are measured, and the side skirts then extend or retract to suit the conditions. Kia Motors has revealed its next-generated separated sound zone technology. The SSZ technology allows each passenger of a vehicle to experience an audio stream tailored to their individual needs, including music, hands-free phone calls and vehicle alerts, without the need for headphones. SSZ technology allows the driver and each passenger to hear isolated sounds. The many speakers installed in the vehicle feature technology that uses scientific principles to reduce or increase audio levels of sound waves. This negates the overlap of sounds being heard in each seat, creating the same effect as current noise cancellation systems. When travelling in a vehicle equipped with SSZ technology, each passenger can connect their own smartphone via Bluetooth and listen to their own music without interference from or interfering with other passengers' audio streams. This also enables the driver to hear navigation sounds or alerts without disturbing passengers. And that has been the news. We have seen and heard about the rapid developments by vehicle manufacturers as they strive to improve the cars of the future. Comfort, efficiency and safety are all receiving great attention. But the world is changing from the freedom to easily make trips of your choice to a world where the capacity of the transport system is being stretched to the limit and the community impact of your travel is much more under the microscope. How does a manufacturer like BMW that has described its brand portfolio with words such as driving pleasure and boosting joy, how does that look to the future in a world where a lot of emphasis will be on how to make the trip in an achievable manner? The idea of the best way to travel is not just personal factors, but fitting in with an increasingly urbanised community. 
Lenore Thatcher is the General Manager of Corporate Communications for the BMW Group in Australia, and she joins us on the line now. Lenore, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. BMW hosted an International Mobility Forum in Melbourne recently. What was that forum about? Well, it's a really, really interesting subject, the uh, Future Mobility Forum. Um, This is a series of programs that's held all around the world by BMW. Every year they will hold several and some will be in Europe, some will be in Asia Pacific and some will be in America. This year they chose Melbourne as one of the spots to hold these forums and it is an event where they speak to a number of different stakeholders. So you might have students in one workshop And in another workshop, you might have industry leaders, government, infrastructure providers, etc. And the whole key idea behind these forums is to get input and feedback on how the actual users and the people in the community see mobility developing in the future. And it's fascinating. Were the young kids keen, the students? The kids uh, at the students, they were actually inspirational. I have never been so energised after listening to these guys speak. Um, blue sky thinking, amazing ideas of the future, really just not having any boundaries and, and willing to embrace any sort of an idea that might improve the commuting of uh, themselves and their, their other people in the community. So it was really amazing to speak to these guys. Yeah, I hope I wasn't being patronising when I referred to them as kids. Uh, it's just more a reflection on my age. And, of course, when I grow up in a period where cars were really just about the motor and the gearbox, it's now much more technology such as connectivity. Absolutely. BMW has a program that we call our ACES program, and that looks at autonomy, connectivity, It looks at electrification and also services. So from the point of view of of the old style way of car manufacturers being simply that, car manufacturers, now uh, BMW in particular is looking at itself as more of a technology company. So there's an enormous amount of potentially different ways that our mobility can go and it's all hinged on the technology that we have. The big issue is that if I do lapse on to a, a system, who owns the relationship? Because am I doing it for BMW or am I doing it as a, a public transport or that? It's, it, it, the relationship with the customer provides other commercial opportunities as well. Look, it does. And I think that that's a very good question that you have there. And one of the key things that customers are looking for is a seamless transition to have their needs met. So you raise a very good point. One thing that I can say from that viewpoint is that this is an, insta- uh, an instance when it's very important and very beneficial to have a strong brand identity. And just speaking for ourselves here, I'm very pleased to say that BMW does have a very strong and a very trusted brand identity. So uh, we're, we're very um, comfortable with that concept at the moment. I guess it's it's how that's used in BMW and, and would use it honourably. There are other ways, though, of which that data can link into other things, and I guess people need to be aware that what that relationship means as well. That you know, you know we've seen through a whole pile of commuter uh, computer technologies where that relationship it's important and you can get benefits from it but that it is a well-respected relationship as well. Again, I think that's key. So security, 
you know, I think consumers are very concerned about security. They're very concerned about data and I think with good reason. So it is something that, again, needs to be very carefully evaluated and very carefully implemented. We need to be assured of what we are doing as we go along. And there's something that is very top of mind for every organisation. Yeah, I think that's a lovely point. The North Fletcher, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure. That's Lenore Fletcher, the General Manager of Corporate Communications for BMW Australia. This is Overdrive across Australia. There's a couple of things Overdrive has been doing recently. We put our video of the launch of the latest MG up on our website. And we have had some comments on our video of the launch of the Ram 1500 pickup. One reader asked, hopefully they will be bringing the 2019 Ram Rebel 1500 out. That's the one I'm waiting for. We contacted Ram and they said, yes, there is every chance of it, but it is not even available to markets outside North America until the end of 2019. If we waited for this vehicle to be available, given right-hand drive development, it would be 2020 before we could have started the project here in Australia. Hence the decision to take the existing vehicle. Ram continued, also remember that the new vehicle doesn't replace the existing vehicle, it supplements it. In North America, it is known as the Ram 1500 Classic and continues in production indefinitely. And finally, a few of the team have been sharing some old photos on racing Jaguars. Our Jaguar file, Chris Ledbeater, emailed back when referring to an E-Type race car. Love it, he said. Where is it now? Question. However, he did add a comment that shows what it's like to be an owner of an old Jaguar. He said, this weekend I spent Saturday sitting in the engine bay of the Mark I sorting stray wires before the engine is installed. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, just before we get to quirky news, I have on the line Brian Smith. Okay, Brian. G'day, David. And we catch you up just before you're off to Vietnam. And I believe that's for business. What are you doing there? Our company is helping the World Bank do some reorganising of the public transport networks in Hanoi, which is in the north of, uh, of Vietnam. It's interesting that the whole system of transport there, which is a reflection of a culture, is is now moving. And, and Vietnam, I think, has taken on a lot more of the free market system. What's particularly changing there? Um, yeah, so they've become very motorised. So a lot of bicycles in Vietnam now, almost overnight in a very short period of time, reasonably cheap motorcycles have expanded and, and uh, about 80% of people are using motorbikes to get around. Massive amounts of pollution and congestion and uh, the Hanoi government has decided that uh, they will ban motorcycles from their streets by 2025. All streets? Yeah, this in the um, in downtown, downtown Hanoi. Whammo. So they're investing quite a lot in metro. They've got several metro lines uh, under construction, uh, and our role is to help them reorganise their bus services and improve it, uh, improve the bus services to um, support metro. But that's interesting that governments have to make some very major decisions when we have 
new technology, new in the sense of new to that culture, whether that's they be able to afford it and be able to use it, you might maximise the benefit to you as an individual, but that brings about uh, a catastrophe to the community. Well, it's an interesting topic because there's plenty of cars there, but the motorcycles are really the way that uh, people without much money get around and, and that many of them operate micro-businesses using their motorbikes. Um, so this emphasis on getting people out of motorbikes or off motorbikes, getting them off the street, um, is, I guess, going to have quite an impact on the lower parts of the socioeconomic divide in Vietnam. It's not that simple to assume that you can replace the utilitarian aspect of a motorbike with any sort of public transport system for everybody. That's, that's something the government has considered, have they? Well, yeah, I can't say too much more about that. But yes, they're, they're conscious that there's a lot of other stuff that goes with motorbikes. There's goods being moved and there's uh, large groups of people on motorbikes, like three, four, five on a motorbike. Um, so, yeah, they, they underpin the economy in a lot of ways. And uh, so, you know, it's not all going to be replaced with transit. Five people on a motorbike is actually spatially efficient in <laughs> yes. some ways, isn't it? I mean, we always condemn one person in a car, but having five people on a motorbike is about as packed in as you can get any bus or train. Yeah, in terms of space they take up, for sure. And they're, they're incredibly efficient. I mean, the motorcycles are tiny. They they take up not very much space. They fill their space very efficiently. So uh, I was in Jakarta not so long ago, and the entire sort of lane, the curbside lane, is just a steady flow of motorbikes so it's very very difficult to uh to turn into another street you have to actually uh, nudge your way in until the first motorcycle kind of pauses and then you nudge further and every everything the, the motorbikes all stop and the cars can start to turn and then the motorcycles start edging forward until the cars prop and then the motorbikes take over so it's like a seesaw effect it's quite amazing a free-for-all in many ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's more like a school of fish than a transport system. <laughs> oh, I have a metaphor about fish in the ocean and our, our transport system, but we won't go into that now. Brian, let's, uh, it's lovely to hear what you're doing and uh, for honourable causes and a good use of uh, modern thinking. It's really proud that uh, you're part of that and are going out to do it. Let's have a quick break and then we'll come back. It does lead in, really, to the first story from our quirky news. This is Overdrive across Australia. And here we are back again uh, with Brian Smith. Brian, I'm doing a paper, Competition, Dominance and Monopoly, to do with MASS, M-A-A-S, Mobility as a Service. And it really ties in with a little of what you were just saying beforehand. Uh, mobility as a service, you and I, I guess, from as everybody from their cultural upbringing, tends to be locked into a particular mode of transport. If you've always driven around in cars, if you have a new trip or another trip to make, the only decision you do is what p road will I take and where do I park? Rarely do we consider other forms of transport. Now, digital technology and information has helped us to do that, and that means I know when the buses are or where they are and when they might be. But 
even if we could link that all together so we could get door to door so that mobility as a service, it might be that I can hire a push bike, leave it at a bus stop, get the bus down, get on a train, or, or and then perhaps use an Uber or a car share at the other end. The point in point is not that I know that I can do it or that there's a service that shows me how to do it, but that I might only have to pay once. Yes, yes, a subscription mm. system it, it is the ideal, isn't it? So the whole point of this mass is really for you not to need your own private car. And that's the, uh, you know, when you can't be certain that you can achieve mobility easily, you you have a car to, to deliver that mobility to you. So it ties up an incredible amount of money that could be used for other things. They depreciate. Uh, they cause a lot of negative externalities. Um, so ideally, yes, you might want to pay a subscription to a service that offers you the mobility you need when you need it. The opening line of my paper is there's three reasons why you might start an organisation. One, to make a profit. Two, to serve people, customers. Or three, to serve the community. And in many ways, they can be mutually exclusive. Now, your example out of Vietnam says that you, people who optimises their individual had an immensely negative effect on the community that if we all use motorbikes, they pollute a lot. So the, the dilemma is if car sharing, of which Uber, Lyft or whoever, maximise their profit, that's not necessarily for the community good. Mm. And that's what we have to be thinking about. There's an interesting element to this, isn't there, David, around the, the sharing economy and the and the assumption that mobility as a service involves you sharing. Now, we all share when we get on a train or a bus with other people, um, but other modes like taxis and Ubers are pro predominantly um, like a private service for you. You get in it, it's just you, you're taken where you want to go, and it's not very efficient. But I, I think one of the risks with mobility as a service is, is that individual appeal because um, you're going to be paying a, a subscription fee, and I suspect if you, you, you may well have the chance to pay more to share less um, and to provide more of your journey or your mobility in a private or personal sense uh, alone rather than um, sharing with other people, which, you know, in a societal sense, that's the ideal. We want to move the maximum number of people in the fewest vehicles and the smallest amount of space. The city, you know, transport in cities is a, is a geometry issue, as, as um, Jarrett Walker, the transport um, writer, says correctly, that it's a problem of geometry. And, and if you want to move a lot of people, you can't do it in lots of vehicles. That's a lovely point, that idea of sharing and the point that I might pay more to get a less sharing transport system or a way to move me around. Because if I were a company that purely concentrated on maximising profit, then I would be giving perhaps a very good service to those who could afford to pay rather than a community service to try and give access to people across the community, across the area. Exactly, David. So the, 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 the value of you as a customer is not just fee-for-service as, as you travel, but it's also the information that that company can gain about your spending habits and your your movement, what your plans are, where you need to go, how often you go there, um, and, and they can market at you and, and you, they can sell things to you. So if you think, say, of uh, being in the Qantas Club or a Qantas Frequent Flyer, you get all sorts of offers to sell you wine, to 
to, um, uh, you know, sell you all sorts of devices f- for your loyalty points. Um, and they know a lot about you. So you, you enter, you fill out surveys that talk about your interests. They can look at your credit card. They can look at your travel information. And so, yes, there's a, there's a sense here that, that you may um, be attracted to be part of a mobility service that gives you a certain cachet. Now, the principle of mobility as a service is it's not just Uber. It is the desire to have a whole range of services available to fulfil various trips or fulfil the one trip with various modes. Now, the principle of that is then you do not want to have modes that are so obviously brand aware. Your point about status and a range of things is that you don't want your options to have a shared car to be an Uber. You want it to be a shared car of which Uber or Lyft or whoever may be the ones that provide it, but that's Mm. not its selling point. The other thing about that is you want all those companies to provide the information about trips to a collective government, if you like, so that you can plan for the community, not just plan for the business. That's a fascinating topic because... Uh, one of the mobility as a service is, is so much more than just the the mobility and the modes. The, it's the idea that that not you decide you want to ring up and, and say I'd like to to book a bicycle or whatever. It's that your diary, your calendar in your phone, for example, is informing a network of your travel needs. And so, if you're heading to the airport tomorrow morning, um, then you know I guess there's the opportunity then for force providers to pitch to you the idea of what the best mode might be to get you to where you want to go and to bundle things with it so it may well be that i i have the chance now to take a taxi or a train or a bicycle to the airport um and someone may well pitch this stuff to me and say well if you do this i'll give you some loyalty points or i'll give you a discount on something else or or if you prepare to go this mode um and and travel by a particular place, um, then, you know, we'll give you a free ride. And so it's very, very complicated. And I think the, the private sector will have different interests in terms of the way they want to shape your behaviour than the government. I think there's no guarantee that mobility as a service will deliver more efficient transport from the government's perspective. I love that expression. That's perfect. The way they want to shape your behaviour. I wish I had have said that, Brian. <laughs> You will, David. (laughs) I will quote you, Brian. I will quote you. you. Okay. Brian, it's always lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's Brian Smith uh, talking some, well, quirky news, or certainly looking with a little bit of a twist on some of the news stories of the day here on Overdrive. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Lenore Fletcher, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.